What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to thank all of our amazing patron supporters and Academy members for making this podcast happen. And the reason that we do this podcast is we get some of the most amazing, amazing authors on this show. And one of the favourite all-time authors on this show goes right the way back, doesn't it, Mark, to like episode number nine. Number can you remember nine. back that far? I can. Episode number I can. Nine. Yeah, Ridiculous. yeah. Ridiculous. Halcyon days. Halcyon days when anything was possible and we had simply the finest guests. And, and this guest was, in fact, even though it was on episode nine, he was, I think, the first author I interviewed for the podcast because it was at Galantz Fest and he was the first author that I rugby tackled to the ground in the green room, pinned him down and stuck a microphone under his nose. And he was gracious enough to stop wriggling around long enough for me to ask him some questions. And he's joined us here today. And we we, we are overwhelmed, delighted, uh, just bursting with joy to welcome back to the bestseller experiment, Lord Grimdark himself, Mr. Joe Abercrombie. Hello, Joe. How are you, sir? What an introduction. <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It truly is an honour and a privilege for both of you to be in my presence <laughs> once again. Well, I was going to say, Joe, last time last time you were on the podcast, Mark had literally wrestled you to the ground. Mm. And like a, it was bustling. There was, there was noise and there were people squeezing past and sounded like plates clattering and today look at look at where we've all got to isn't this incredible like we have upgraded to the beautiful comfy confines of a zoom room it's just absolutely brilliant well that's where everything happens now the zoom room right, right? i mean there are no more groups of gathering people because they're all responsibly socially distanced although i understand you know relatively soon that's all going to be Coming to an end, I'm about to tour again for this next book, and that is both wonderful and slightly concerning because I'm not sure that we're quite at the point of, you know, the idea of meeting some people and talking to some people is fine, but then where are we on handling big piles of books and handing them back and forth or posing for pictures or, you know, having people embrace you for a selfie? I don't know. It's all a little bit up in the air still. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Well, I saw an incredible a stack of your books on your Twitter um, a couple of, well, over the last couple of days, quite the, mm. it seems like the most enormous crate load of uh, in a warehouse, but I kind yeah. of like, I have a horror to think that what would happen if we have to like write, wipe sanitization over that beautiful shiny cover every time you have to hand it out. Right. <laughs> I know. And it's soft touch as well. So it probably all start peeling at the edges. <laughs> 
be might be well maybe those have become the collectible limited covid editions you know those could be worth <laughs> thousands well i mean thousands it's always the rarity it's the rarity that really makes the thing valuable and yeah. since i signed three and a half thousand in the warehouse the other day the rarity level is low <laughs> extremely low it could be it could be like the shredded banksy poster of covid though imagine that I suppose drinks. so. The are one off, aren't they? That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you did three and a half thousand of each one, no one would be interested. Oh, that's brilliant. So we'll talk a bit more about the book uh, in, a, in a moment, Joe, but I'm, mm. we're really kind of interested to kind of catch up with you. And I mean, it's been, it's been four and a bit years. How, how has your life been as, how has your life been as an author in those years? What would you say your main highlight would have been in the last few years? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously the, the last couple of years have been very much dominated by the whole COVID thing and the way that that's, that's changed the industry. I mean, in, in a way for writers, I suppose, you know, for full-time writers, it hasn't changed that much. It's changed a lot less than it has for many people. You know, we never went into work in any sense. We spent a lot of time sitting around at home in our pants or pyjamas, you know, more Zoom calls now fewer trips up to London to see the publisher um, and a general feeling of isolation, a lot of kids around, which has kind of made it a little more difficult to concentrate. When it started the lockdown, it was, uh, it was brilliant because we instituted this very strict timetable based on my daughter's timetable, you know, so that we can make sure the kids had some structure to their day. And that had the paradoxical effect of making my day massively more structured than it had been for years <laughs> and i got huge amounts done for a few weeks and then gradually the wheels start to come off the wagon and it became a little bit harder to make progress um so it's been weird i guess the highlight in a way is is just coming up this month because i've, I've been i've been working on a trilogy for the past five or six years you know two or three years drafting it and kind of getting a very rough draft of the whole thing and then publishing the three books a year apart. And so the last couple of years have really been getting the books out there and the last one's out in a month or so. And so that's the culmination of this, this period of work, I suppose. So it'll be nice to get that out there, I hope, and see the ecstatic, uniformly ecstatic and positive reactions to the readers. Because that's what you expect, you know? <laughs> Absolutely no negative reviews or, or reaction. Well, absolutely. That's what I'm looking yeah. Forward to. yeah, I think that's 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 you put it out there, Joe, and uh, and it happens, right? It's, and it's, it's actually happened. quite in, it's quite interesting because you've been using on your Twitter. I've been noticing how you've you've been posting up. Uh, is it daily? You pick up one of your favourite five star reviews and you post it up. Well, well it, yeah. I mean, it started off with one star reviews, right? <laughs> and it still is relatively frequently. But I started to realise two things. First of all, it felt a bit it felt a bit one noted to only do the one star reviews. You know, what am I saying by only doing the one star reviews? And secondly, it started to encourage people to post one star reviews. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask if that had happened. Yeah. What was your favorite kind of, um, what was your favorite kind of Rick rolling one star review that you got that was actually put up there on purpose by a fan? Well, it's hard to say because rarely would they say, oh, and I hope he, he posts this, you know. <laughs> well, there were a couple where it was clearly put up in, in an effort to, to, to kind of catch my attention. But I think, you know, generally it would be impossible to separate a joke, ironic review from a serious one when because they get a bit ridiculous anyway, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was yeah. one that said something along the lines of, you know, violent and horrible 
that's the last time I asked the ladies at the library for recommendations. Which is is ridiculous enough to make you wonder, could that really be someone who's been outraged by the the ladies at the library's recommendation? Could it really be, or is it someone just just taking a piss? Very nicely judged, if it was someone. Beautifully done. If that was you, someone listening, please own up and tell us. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now let, let's take you back to like the, the the first time you're on the podcast, and mm. you were uh, you were talking about we were talking about you know um, bestseller dominance very early on the, in the podcast where we were, we were really excited to kind of delve deep into that. Right. Um, one thing I'm really interested to ask is is with all the success that you've had, Joe, and and this incredibly loyal, brilliant fan base that you've built up. I mean, it's amazing just like looking at how they how they respond on, on Twitter and the like. But what, what have you found over the last kind of four years in terms of how you kind of recalibrate what you want to do next? Like, where, cause I know this is probably, you're probably living the dream now. I'd say like, if we went back say 10 years, would you say you're living the dream? Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because living the dream is always kind of banal, you know? I mean, on one level, yeah. You know, I'm published in lots of languages and lots of countries and there are people hungry to read my books. And so it's kind of beyond your wildest dreams on one level because I started writing in the middle of the night for my own amusement and never really imagined anyone would be interested. You have this weird schizophrenic thing as a writer, I think. On the one hand, you think, this is completely silly nonsense. No one will ever be interested. And on the other hand, you think, I am the combination of the best elements of Hemingway, McCarthy and Tolkien, (laughs) and I will set the world aflame with the sheer power of my words, you know, you have that, that's schizophrenic thing. And so you're both sort of shocked that anyone's interested and dismayed that you're not number one on the bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, so there's always going to be headroom. There's always further places to go. And I suppose, you know, if you're venomously ambitious, a venomously ambitious sociopath as I, as I am, your eyes are very much fixed ahead on the next goal, the next world to conquer, like Alexander the Great. Me and him have a lot in common, I feel. Um, and so, you know, you're never kind of satisfied and you're always thinking about the the mechanics of the next step. You know, I think I find that with writing, you have to break it down into tiny stages. Because if you look at a book or like a huge trilogy and think, right, I've got this huge trilogy to write, it's paralyzing in its scale, that task. You know, so you've got to break it down and say, Today, I will think about this character. Today, I will plan this chapter. Today, I'll write a paragraph. And you, big things are made of little things. You know, you break it down to steps. And so I think you're always, you know, you're looking at the, the bit of the path right in front of your toes, not the mountaintop ahead. And that encourages a kind of feeling of never really thinking, oh, where have I come from? You're not looking back to where you started any more than you're looking ahead to where you're going. You know, you're focusing on the, on the minutiae. So I don't suppose there's this sense of living the dream, really. There's just this sense of, oh, I've got to respond to that email. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I've got to sign a couple of books. It's it's tasks to be done. Um, And there's always the feeling of, you know, you tend to be looking more at, oh, where's my next step? What's my next improvement? What's the next big thing? Will this book do as well as the last? You know, you're always worrying about, maintaining where you are and trying to move forward than you are thinking, wow, here I am in the, you know, in, and, and there's the natural thing as well of for every writer will probably recognize this. 
whenever you talk to anyone who's not part of your publishing circle or, you know, other people within the sci-fi and fantasy realm say, no one will ever have heard of you, ever. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's extremely rare. So when you talk to someone at a party, they never know who you are, you know, and they'll always say, it follows a predictable course, the conversation, which is, oh, what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm a writer. And they're like, oh, oh exciting. Are you published? That's the first question. You say, yeah, no, I, I am published. Depending how, how pissy I'm feeling, I'll say, in 30 languages. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, once they've said, oh, so you are published. Oh, exciting. Oh, well, I must have heard of you then. What, what, what name do you write under? And you say, oh, Jarba Crombie. And they just look at you blankly like, well, I haven't heard of you, you know. But, of course, most people haven't heard of many writers. You know, they've heard of Sheldon and Clive Custler and those kind of big front of WH Smith's type authors, but anyone less well-known than that, they've never heard of. So you've always got the, the kind of humbling effect of no one ever having heard of you. <laughs> which, well. which is great in some ways, because I think it keeps yeah. us striving forward, right? And it, keep, it keeps us, you know, in some ways, keeps things grounded as well. But it's one of the interesting things, though, is I think that that sense of always striving to keep improving is actually one of the things that actually defines a great author. Because I think the minute you get kind of, you know, you think, oh, it's time to get the hammock out. You know, I'm, I've done it, tick the boxes. That's when you, we lose our mojos. So how much of that drive, where does that drive come from? What was it? Was there something in your childhood? I mean, you talked about your mum before. Like, was, were you, was there a kind of degree of, of that that happened in, in your family? Was it something that you did as a kid? Were you the kid out there sweeping the snow off people's driveways? <laughs> that would require more public spirit than uh, that I fear I possess. Uh, just terror. I mean, just just terror, isn't it? Just fear. And fear of failure, I think, is always a powerful motivator. But I suppose, you know, I was I was brought up, my mother as an English teacher, we've talked about her a bit in the past, and, you know, she, she had me thinking about books very early on in quite a sophisticated way, both on the macro level of plot and character and on the very much on the micro level of language and how you achieve a certain effect and what the author's going for by the way they write the words they pick the rhythms they use the structures and so on so I've always been very interested in kind of the detail of language and how things are put together but I think yeah I mean you're you're always trying to some degree to move forward I mean I think it's difficult when you've had any degree of success there's always a a big inertia, a kind of gravity towards doing something similar and something that will work for the readers you've already got, you know? So writing another of those books you did last time is something that there's always a big attraction to. And at the same time, you're conscious that writing something radically different can be very dangerous and potentially career ending. You know, there's always a, you try to balance those two things on the one hand, you know, the, you don't want the acorn to fall too far from the tree. You want it to work for the readers you've got. You don't want to suddenly quarter your readership because quite apart from any financial concerns, you know, it's a big part of your assessment of whether a book worked or not is does anyone read it? You know, if no one reads it, is it any good? You know, you want to be read. And so you want to write a book that people read, but at the same time, you do want to push yourself and stretch yourself. And, you know, it's very easy to just become a repetitive pastiche of yourself and write the same book over and over. And I think all writers or most writers, you know, do to some degree write the same book over and over. They have styles of character and concerns. They, they kind of constantly circle and come back to, but it's about kind of trying to keep that 
as fresh as you can and to push yourself to try different styles of character to try you know different ages of character different classes of character different genders and, and you know keep keep trying to stretch yourself and try different things different styles of plot and so on so that you know you stay fresh i mean i think as well as readers we might read the whole oeuvre of a writer in a couple of months. You know, you discover an author, you get really into them. Maybe they've written 10 books and yet you, you blast through them. You're like, wow, I love those books. I could, I could read those forever. But in fact, that moment comes quite quickly when suddenly you're like, oh, I'm bored of that. You know, and for, for authors, you spend a year on each of those books, maybe, you know, so whereas the experience of a reader is a week and you're out and you're hungry for more for the author, you spent a year and you're probably sick of the sight of those characters and that idea and that, that whole setting. So it's nice to keep moving and, and, and stretching yourself. I feel you've got to do that. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's talk about the new trilogy, uh, which uh, you've capped off with the wisdom of crowds, third book, and it's the age Mm. of madness trilogy. And sort of ties into everything you were saying just now, you know, it's set in the same. Oh, Oh, that's the U S cover. Is it not? U.S. cover, yeah. <clears throat> okay, cool. When I'm ever talking to British people, I get the U.S. cover out because it seems exciting and different. And if exotic, to Americans, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's set. The tr- trilogy is set in the same world as your previous books. It has a lot of characters overlapping, but you've jumped mm. forward in time to a kind of industrial revolution. So you've got this wonderful mix of fantasy and battles and magic, but you've also got social commentary, factories, workers revolting against the upper classes, that kind of thing, uh, technological revolution as well. What were your uh, – I mean, you, you, you talked about doing something a bit too different. And funnily enough, we had Steve Kavanagh on a couple of weeks ago, and he, he was saying his big breakthrough came when he said, I'm going to write something that people actually want to read, You know, which is what you were saying, that sort of commitment to the reader. So you've already got a big reader base there who have an expectation. So you suddenly shift things around. It's a bit more industrial. It's uh, You've got – I mean, your books have always had a strong sense of you know, exploring – uh, moral grey areas and stuff like that, but this this feels very political with you and revolutionaries and what have you. Was there any trepidation going into this series because it it it, it has that shift? A little, yeah. I mean, like you said, it is in an established world. I've written six books in that world, so there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of relationships and history and stuff to draw on, which is mostly an advantage, though also a bit of a kind of weight to bear to get things right and make sure you pay things off satisfactorily and so on. But it's generally a good thing. Um, But as you say, you know, the idea was to push the time period, I suppose, the inspiration forward a little bit. I've always been a bit frustrated by fantasy books that, you know, feel like they take place in this medieval sandbox that never changes. And has been a thousand years of wizards and swords, you know, um, and I like a world that feels like it's shifting and changing and in the kind of constant painful flux that our world does. And so the first trilogy I wrote in this world had the kind of rise of the merchant class as the backdrop a little bit. So it's kind of a period of social and economic upheaval up to a point. And the Industrial Revolution felt like the next big thing to take on. Um, and so that was the concept right from the start. And I suppose a certain level of politics is baked into that you know there's a lot of class conflict that you can't really avoid if you're tackling that subject matter rich versus poor um innovation versus conservatism you know 
so there's a there's a definitely a political element to it and a sort of set of dramas that are inherent to the setting and that was what excited me about it i suppose i was a little concerned that i think with fantasy there certainly is a part of the readership that likes their medieval guys in furs stuff <laughs> and once you deviate too far from that they they maybe get a little peeved mm. um and so i think i have been losing a few guys in furs enthusiasts for a while now um and i definitely lost a few with this i mean perhaps not so much because of the i think a combination of the technological advancement the the sort of some of the politics and the presence of women so there's quite a lot of female characters quite a lot of central female characters and so there's definitely quite a few reviews that that go along the lines of i really enjoy female characters but oh <laughs> and then you know you know what you're gonna get roughly so but then you've got to push yourself and maybe you gain readers in other places you know or you 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 deliver something that wasn't you know, readers who hadn't enjoyed your previous stuff because they felt it wasn't, you know, ticking certain boxes for them. Maybe this is their favourite thing of yours suddenly. So, you know, you lose some readers, you gain some. I think you've got to, you've got to be bold and try new stuff up to a point, but then you're always, you're always going to be a little worried that it won't work for some people. And it always won't work for some people. You know, nothing will be beloved by everyone. And, you know, they always say, go and go and look at your favourite books online, you know, go and look at the reviews for Blood Meridian or look at the reviews for Pride and Prejudice or whatever it may be. And you will see lots of bizarre one-star reviews for everything ever. So you can't take it too seriously. No, yeah, definitely not. And we always say that the more one-star reviews you have, in theory, the more five-star reviews have. So uh, that's always a good thing. I think yeah. one of the things things that interests me, Joe, is um, with with regards to, like, you talk about, making change um i mean i've come from the music background and i always think for people like who go off on one you know they go from like heavy metal to new jazz mm. but the thing about you as an author is it's always joe writing isn't it and i think so there's always that core consistency regardless of what what the surroundings look like it's still you writing and so i think um i think there's less risk in some ways of like you know losing an entire fan base because you you know if somebody tries writing something completely different but you mentioned and tying into the last interview you did you talked about your mum said that the, the, the probably the best tip you'd ever heard from anyone was this idea about is it true mm. so do you still do you still feel that you know as long as you're true to what you're writing you know that the reader will come along with you yeah absolutely I mean I, I think that's yeah I, I continue to be a huge believer in that i mean i'm sure i don't always follow through on my own advice um but yeah absolutely i think it's honesty it's kind of the voice of the characters um that's the key thing for me in a way and that's what i respond to as a reader you know i respond to books where i feel like i'm hearing a voice i haven't heard before where i'm talking to a person I've never met someone like that before where they have a way of thinking about things and viewing the world and communicating that I would never have thought of myself. You know, that's what I respond to that kind of authentic, believable, unique voice. And so that's what I aim for, you know, when I'm writing myself. Uh, and to me, if you've got great characters and a powerful kind of authorial voice, then 
not that plot and world and things of that kind are entirely unimportant, but you can have a pretty boring plot, a plot where very little happens, a world that's not terribly differentiated, and with fascinating characters, it's still fascinating. Whereas for me, boring characters will always be a boring book, regardless of what else you've got going on. So voice and and that kind of, yeah, that that the the characterization is is paramount always. I've got some listener questions, Joe. Shall we dive into those? Yeah. Cool. By stuff. all means. Okay. Well we've got we'll kick off with uh, Alex, wait, and you've kind of touched on this already, but I'd like to dig into it in a little more detail. Uh, Alex says, mm. for Joe's latest trilogy, he tried a new process of outlining them all first before going back to book one for the final edit. How did he like this way of working? Would he do it again? Was it too much work? Now, because I remember with the original trilogy, at least, I remember you expressing regret that you got to the third book and there were things in book one that you wish you could go back and change. That's where this came from, wasn't it? Well, partly. I mean, I, th- I think it was it was partly an attempt to sort of recreate the the circumstances under which I'd done the first book because um, I wrote the blade itself, obviously, as a hobby, completely without any notion that it would ever be published necessarily, with no one to answer to, no time pressure. I just did whatever I wanted, and then I started looking for a publisher. But by the time I found one, I was halfway through the second book. And by the time the first book was published, I was getting towards the end of the third book, I think. So I, I sort of had that luxury of rethinking the first book a bit with the benefit of knowing where I was going. Although I think you're right, there are certainly details that looked at again, I would do differently, you know. And so it seemed to me that if I was going to try and write a coherent, you know, three book series that really was one story rather than kind of three linked stories. I really had to write the whole thing first uh, or at least, you know, draft it pretty well so that I, I felt like I can't really write a good start until I know what the end's going to be because the two have got to match, you know, they've got to line up and experience has taught me that, you know, you can plan or I can, and then the plan goes wrong. Yes. You know, as Mike Tyson has, it, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the That's face. Right. <laughs> Helmuth von Moltke, I think, said, no plan survives contact with the enemy in a slightly more academic Mm -hmm. style. Um, So until you've written it, you don't know, really. And so you've got to write it. And so I felt like I had to draft it. But also, you know, experience has taught me as well that from a publishing point of view, from a commercial and business point of view, there's always this pressure to get the next book out there. And usually that results in a scramble towards the end where things are a little bit unsatisfactory and maybe you miss the the date by a month or two and then it becomes difficult. Maybe you have to shift the publication date by a month or two and that's all a bit frustrating and and less than ideal. So I felt like creatively it would be great to have a draft finished before I really came to rewrite that first book. And it also put me in a very, you know, confident position because I wouldn't be writing that book thinking, oh God, is this going to work? Oh God, is this going to work? As I always am. You know, I've got to the end of a draft and I think, okay, I have the shape here. I can see it'll work, you know. Um, So creatively, it was the right thing to do. But commercially, once you've got that draft, you can say, all right, now, when's the best time to publish the book? What's the best schedule to publish all three? And if we decide to publish them yearly, which was kind of the decision in the end, publish them in September, 
then having finished all three, I know, you know, I can't write a book a year, but I can edit and revise and polish a book a year. And so I knew I'd be able to get them ready for those dates and we'd hit those dates without loads of panic. Booksellers would know they were coming. The publisher would know they were coming and we could kind of rely on them appearing at the right moment. Obviously the, the pandemic then happened and kind of slightly threatened to scupper our plans though. In the end, we did stick with it. So, I mean, it was, it was brilliant to do and it was kind of vital to do. Um, and I don't think I ever really considered doing this another way, but obviously it was great. I had support from my publisher, from my editor, Julian, chiefly, um, who sort of agreed with me that, that was the best thing to do. And that, that meant waiting a while for that first book, of course, but it felt better to you know have two or three years without publishing anything and then be able to bring them out regularly and kind of build it in the way we wanted to, uh, rather than, you know, drop them whenever they happen to appear. Not quite perfect. I'm interested in that that gap because there were, like I say, a couple of years where there was no Joe. There was no no new Joe. Was yeah. there, uh, certainly, because I, I was, at, it was, it was because I was at Orion at the time, you know, it's like, where's the new Joe coming from? I'm sure there were lots of readers like that as well. Um, was there any kind of fear that, you might see, you might lose momentum. You might, you know, lose some readers to, God forbid, you know, Scott Lynch or someone like that. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, there definitely was. I mean, it's easy to see writing as a zero sum game. Like you say, you know, you, re- you lose a reader at Scott Lynch. Well, you know, I'm sure me and Scott Lynch have a lot of readers in common, you know, and, and just because someone goes and reads Scott Lynch doesn't mean they won't come back and read one of mine. And in fact, it possibly makes it a bit more likely they will because there's a whole set of writers who are kind of talked about in the same breath who appeared at the same time. And I think we've all benefited from the fact that we, you know, uh, it draws more attention to that, to the genre as a whole, when you've got a set of writers all working together and kind of doing hopefully interesting things at the same time. Um, so, you know, there was a, there was a bit of worry that you, you, you're out of the game for a little while and you fade away and are forgotten. And, you know, that does happen. But then it happens when people are publishing all the time as well. You know, there's no certainty in the in the game. And in the end, the sure way to fail and disappear is to write bad books, right? I mean, writing the best books you can is, is the best way of maintaining your presence, I think. Um, and as I say, I felt like the chance of kind of success for the three books as a whole was best if they were published in this kind of regular timely way after a break you know if um if i was writing something like a a detective series where each one is its own entry in a kind of potentially endless series you'd drop them regularly a year two years you wouldn't be as worried but i think when it's a it is that very much builds and and interrelated very tightly you're better off leaving a gap before and a gap after, but getting the series out in, in as timely a way as you can. So, yeah, I mean, there were concerns for sure, but I still felt like it was the best thing to do. And, you know, you have the luxury of being 10 books in and being, you know, reasonably well-known. You feel like you'll stay around enough. You'll will hang about like a bad smell enough on the strength of your backlist and the books that are out there 
um, that when the new one appears, people will still be ready for that to, you know, they'll be excited for that and ready to, to pick it up. And then you'll live or die on the basis of that book. You know, I don't know how much uh, the goodwill never goes that far, I don't <laughs> think, for, uh, for anyone. So, you know, you can't be dropping bad books ever. But uh, still the best option, despite that slight concern. You're always going to be worried and concerned for every book you put out. Will that be your modus operandi moving forward then? Is it going to be like, okay, so I'm going to do a trilogy again, another couple of years where there's no, you know, no new, new uh, books from me? Uh, because i got to say, I mean, it's been great having one a year uh, back again. And if people get used to the idea, is that is that is that how it's going to work from now on? I mean, I think if I was writing another big trilogy, that's probably how I'd try and do it. Um, but then with the Shattered Sea ones, say, I didn't do it that way. You know, I did them a book at a time. Uh, because they're more self-contained, it was easier to do that. So I think it just depends on the project, really. Um, and I'd probably write standalone books as well that were, you know, single books where there wasn't the same scale. And the, the scale is sort of... It's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to deal with. It's big, it's complicated. The great thing about that sort of project is it gets faster as you go along. So the, there's a lot of work that goes into the first book and getting the characters set up and the whole thing moving. And then once you've done that tough job with the first book, the second two are much, much easier to write is generally my experience. Um, so starting projects is often the hardest part. If I was writing a big trilogy like that again, I'd do it the same way, but I won't be doing that soon, I don't think, because it's just, it's such a big commitment and something you've really got to work your way up to and you've got to be in the right place in, in other ways to kind of take that on. So I think some smaller, more self-contained projects first, please. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I, I think it benefits to read it like that as well, because I'm, because, you know, we're going to be at Waterstones on the 17th in uh, a couple yeah. of weeks. And I, I sort of, I'd read the first one and then I picked up the second one and there's, the, you have a very handy bit at the beginning, what went before. And I got about three pages into that and thought, sod it, I'm just going to read the first book again, which I've done and gone straight into the second <laughs> book. I'm about halfway through that. And then I'll just keep reading. And they work as a piece. They so work as a piece as, you know, to be enjoyed and completely get lost in as one big trilogy. So I think that certainly in in that that feeling of having continuity of tone and story and pace and everything else, that has really, really works, really, really mm. works. Oh, nice. Thank you. Yeah. More, more listener questions for you. Uh, I got mm. one from Dylan O'Cassidy. And Dylan says, symmetry plays a big part in Joe's books. Does he plan this all out beforehand or is it happy coincidence as he writes? For example, uh, Logan Ninefingers is introduced falling off a cliff and then he ends a trilogy falling out the window. And then there, he has mentioned a name, which I don't want to mention in the new trilogy, but someone severely injures their leg, which is similar to Glockter. Uh, so mm. is that something that has come out of the let's do three books together or do you see opportunities for symmetry and pounce on them? Or is it something you plan ahead? I mean, I think some of that you've got to plan ahead or you can't really, you can't really do it. Some of it is stuff that you stumble upon as you go and think, Oh, that would work. That, that, there's an echo there that works. And some of it is kind of happy accidents that you then pretend you'd planned all along. 
uh, when someone brings them up. So <laughs> a sort of range of, of, of the three, but I love, you know, patterns and shapes and balance and mirror images and full circles and things of that kind. So I always end up doing a lot of that kind of almost despite myself anyway. Um, and indeed the, this third book has a lot of kind of references to not only the other two books in this series, but to the, the other, all, all nine books set in this world as well. It's kind of a lot that came up that just naturally felt like it, it came full circle and it was right to repeat things. And I like the feel that gives you of kind of closure and, uh, and a cycle that starts again, you know, because going back to fantasy and, and my frustrations with some of those worlds, you know, you also get these epochal battles of good against evil after which everything is changed. You know, the final battle is over the end and battles are never like that. You know, they just have the seeds of the next battle in them. So I like a world that feels like it's, it's constantly doing the same thing, you know, going over the same ground, repeating the same patterns and that, that circular, that circular feel, you know, can give you that sense. Quick question on the title, Joe, I've got, um, wisdom of the crowds. Is that a nod to COVID? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, no, not at all, because COVID kind of happened long after this book was written. Um, and indeed, it happened before, you know, Brexit and Trump and a lot of that stuff had happened as well. You know, most of it was written before any of that. Um, or, you know, it was it was written in the early stages of Brexit, some of it. Um, and then weirdly, I found what actually happened was that real events overtook me, which has happened a few times in the past. And I'd written things like, you know, the toppling of statues. I wrote a whole long sequence about the toppling of statues. And then there was all that stuff about Colston statue in Bristol, obviously. And suddenly it just looked so on the nose. It looked ridiculously on the nose. Like it looked <laughs> so obvious that was what I've been writing about. And, you know, the defacement of the cenotaph and the war memorials and stuff. I had, I had all kinds of stuff about, people pulling down flags and trampling on flags. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this is just so nakedly obvious now. So I had to, I had to rethink a bit, but I think it also made me think, oh, you know what? I was being a little bit one dimensional in my treatment of some of that stuff, seeing it happening. And obviously like, you know, there's a lot of riots in these books and then there's all the riots in the States and, you know, of various kinds. Um, it made me look at those in a bit more detail and think, oh, I need to be a bit more nuanced, a bit more thoughtful about what I'm saying, what I'm doing with these. So it was a weird thing where real events had kind of overtaken me and then they gave me an opportunity to rethink a little bit what I'd written. So it's written before the events, but then modified slightly in, in reaction to them. But yeah, Wisdom of Crowds, it was called something else originally. And then that was a, a chapter title in the book it just started to suit the book more and more. Um, my editor had said, I'm not sure about the title we'd picked. How about this? And I was like, no, that's terrible. What are you talking about? And then, of course, <laughs> as always, yeah. the months passed. And every time I thought about it, I thought, oh, it does work, actually. And then it started to work better and better. And then, you know, it was like, yeah, she's right. Yeah, as always, right? In Gillian, we trust. Yeah. It's interesting in the trouble with peace as well. There's there's a union, and 
in danger of breaking apart and people are scrabbling around for votes mm-hmm. as well. And it's like, you know, if this was published 10 years ago, oh, it's fantasy, of course. Um, okay, let's yeah. – uh, I've got, got a question from Andrew Guile who says, in what way does Joe think his writing has changed since The Blade itself? And what tricks have you learned along the way to enrich your prose? Tricks, Joe, are there any tricks? The tricks. If only there was a trick, right? Uh, I think in a lot of ways it hasn't changed that much. Um, I mean, it certainly has changed a bit and the process has changed a bit. The fundamental approach is still much the same. And, you know, it comes back to that thing of trying to develop a, a sort of distinctive, vivid voice for every character and to make them as different and differentiated as possible and to really feel like you're in the the head of the individual whose point of view it's written from at, at all times um, and to be more interested in the, in the emotional experience of being in their shoes than some kind of technical description of what's going on, if you like. So that's really what the approach has always been. And I think it remains very much that, and, you know, the, the overall kind of it's point of view writing written from six the view age of madness is very similar i mean consciously quite similar to to first law in the way that it's done mm. i mean if there's been a change it's that i achieve a better result much more quickly i used to go over and over and over everything that i wrote as i was writing it and spend you know the first hour of every session going over what i'd written the night before right. and rewrite and you know i was kind of learning how to do it by endlessly going over and revising. And these days I tend to smash out a first draft much more quickly. And that first draft is much better and more workable. So I think I'm, I'm much more efficient than I was in the way that I work and the way that I revise. Um, but I don't know that it's changed immensely. And, you know, I don't necessarily, well, I, I look back at though, especially my first book is a little rough around the edges at times, but that's also, part of the charm in a way and I kind of sometimes read that book and you know partly I think oh I could have written that better I would have cut that I'd do it differently but partly I also think oh I wish I had that kind of exuberance you know and, and <laughs> tightrope you know the tightrope walker who doesn't bother looking down you know um that, that I had then because I didn't care you know it was just having fun with it um so I slightly miss that as well. So I don't think it's really changed immensely in a way. There are, there are millions of little things that I've, I've kind of learned. And I suppose the, the, big, the big lesson is that, you know, I learned writing my fourth book, which was kind of my difficult second album, Best of Cold. I was massively unconfident and, and, and doubting writing that because it was the first thing I'd done. You know, it was a new project that I, that I wrote as a you know, existing writer with some level of expectation and, uh, you know, rather than developing ideas I've had for years and years, it was something new. And I'd expected I'd just get better and better and quicker and quicker as I did writing the first three books. And in fact, I just came to a lurching halt on the buffers when it was new characters and, you know, a new style of book. So that was horrible, that experience. And I thought, man, this is it. I'm done. And then it kind of came together over time, you know, sitting in front of it and working at it and getting to the end of it and then revising it, I kind of worked out, okay, I knew what I had to do to make it work. And then up to the point of making it work and it turned out actually fantastic. 
do I say so myself? <laughs> um, so now, I, you know, the experience of that meant whenever I feel like I've got a disaster on my hands, which is all the time, um, I kind of have the faith that it will turn out okay. So I still doubt and worry, but it doesn't feel apocalyptic in the way that it used to. I think that's the lesson. That's so You can always fix anything. You know, you can always rewrite anything. You can redo it. You can chuck it away. You can, you can redo. And so that's the, I think the lesson. It's super awesome learned. hearing that, Joe, because it's so important for other writers to hear that because we hear that so much. Even though, no matter how successful people are as authors, we hear that so much. And I, I love the fact that you're so honest and open about that and real. You know, talking about being real in your books, being real as an author because other authors, it's the thing that inspires authors the most when they hear people like you saying, yeah, it's still hard. And yeah, I I thought this was going to crash and burn. And and so I think that's brilliant that you can verbalise that and and make it real for everyone else and, and normalise it, I think, for every author as well, which is which is awesome. Um I've always felt the more the more you take the kind of magical thinking out of writing, the better. Yeah. The more you see it as a banal task, fruit picking, brick laying, plastering, you know, it's just a task. The fruit picker can't turn up and say, I'm just not feeling it today. <laughs> you know, I'll come back tomorrow, we'll try then. He just keeps going. And I think as a writer, you've got to try and look at it the same way and just think, you know, it's not magic, it's work. And indeed, the magic happens when you're working, mm. right? The magic doesn't happen as you on the fading couch waiting to begin. You know, the news visits the guy who is at the desk. And so it's important to be at the desk should she drift by the window. Sorry, that's, that's two potential episode titles there, one after the other. Thank you very much for that, Joe. I'm always <laughs> on the lookout for those. Um, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned POV uh earlier we got a, I, I love this question from josh atkinson who says what is joe's process for creating unique voices for pov characters especially when they've never been introduced before like uh the chapter onwards and upwards from uh the heroes uh which is by the way just as an aside whenever anyone because we have the bestseller academy lots of people wanting to write a lot of people wanting to write fantasy and saying how do i write battle scenes and i always point them to the heroes as an example of great battle writing so just to say there uh, and uh, just says just says these kinds of head hopping chapters feel very cinematic are they influenced by your editing day so you've pov characters particularly characters who just maybe day player characters just come in and out of a scene you 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 do make them very very real and vivid, and is that does that you know is that the head hopping as well the jumping from one character to another which when done with intent is is absolutely brilliant is that something that comes from sort of a, a film pace thing that you have? Yeah, partly I think um, I suppose how you go about it. I said take all the magical thinking out of out of writing, but now I'm immediately going to say there is a certain there is a certain magic box element to this in that sometimes characters just come out fully formed and they work straight away. Mm. And sometimes they don't sometimes they take a lot more work and development. Um, and it's a combination of things, I guess. I mean, it's a sort of uh, a lot of which is more instinctive than it is conscious. Um, but it's as with dialogue or anything else, you know, how a character talks, how they think, you try and pick a, a rhythm and a structure that seems to work for that character. 
So, you know, if they're a, a quick thinking, not terribly intellectual person, you might aim for simpler vocabulary and lots of contractions and shorter sentences and shorter paragraphs. You know, if they're intellectual and pompous, they might have, you know, very elaborate word choice and elaborate structure and long run on sentences and use semicolons and stuff of that kind. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's basic and obvious things like that. Um, but generally speaking, I, I tend to begin by just writing in my own voice, relatively neutrally. And as I'm going, certain things will work and seem to suit that character. And I'll start trying to introduce that more. And often that includes kind of repeated phrases or patterns of thought that seem to suit that character well. Um, and certain things won't work and then you'll, you'll start chiseling them out. So, you know, and, and your concept of what the character is will shift as you're doing that, you know, and, and you'll, you'll start to fix on certain things. Are they someone who is very moved by what people look like? Are they observing people's expression? Are they trying to get people's thoughts? Do they not care? Are they very self-obsessed? They're thinking about themselves all the time, you know? Are they a general who's endlessly thinking about the ground and how he'd situate an army on that ground because that's his kind of obsession? Or are they, you know, a socialite who's thinking about the social aspects of something and gaining advantage within a, within a group, you know, how they might work that. So it's sort of a trial and error thing as well. You, you're endlessly revising and going over chapters and, and try to pull out what works and cut away what doesn't until you, you achieve the, you know, you get to some kind of essence of what the person's like. And sometimes it's rounds of editing where you'll pull out all the chapters from a certain point of view and go through all of those together in an attempt to sort of get your head into that way of thinking and that way of looking at things. And, you know, you could just keep going over those to really try and distill down. If they're a character who doesn't use long words, you try and pull out every long word and find a different way of, of expressing it. And you're also looking for more arresting and more interesting things, you know, where you might have used a rather bland descriptor. They raise their brows. I use eyebrows a lot. Loads of eyebrows. My first drafts are just eyebrows all over the place. <laughs> eyebrows up, eyebrows down. And then, you know, where you've got an eyebrows, you think, okay, what can I put here that is unique to this person or to this setting or to, you know, is there something physically about them that is some feature, you know, do they do something, do they have some trick, some mannerism that I can use that gives more personality and more kind of uniqueness is an awful word, but let's say, let's use it on this occasion um, and, and just make everything as distinct and vivid as you can. And so it's, it's constant revision. Um, the, the head hopping thing, I suppose that wasn't something that was in my repertoire right from the start. So I use that in the heroes. It just seemed to be, the way to tell that particular scene. Mm. And because the heroes is a very big picture thing that doesn't focus as much on individuals, it focuses on the kind of system of the battle, the, the chaotic scale and scope of the whole thing. It made sense to follow a lot of individuals through. Mm. And it was a way to both see a lot of the people involved and the range of people involved and the range of their attitudes to warfare and to heroism, which was kind of the subtext of the book. Um, and it was also a way to follow this huge event and get a quick movement through it and get some sense of how the battle ebbs and flows and what are the, the forces that move things along. And it just seemed to work really well. And, you know, it kind of, I guess it played to my strengths in the sense that 
I'm quite good at creating a sense of a character quickly. And so to do that in sort of little flashbulb moments with lots of different people just worked well. It was one of those moments where it was like, ah, oh, this works. And I've then continued to overuse it ever since. I was going to say, you, it's in a little hatred, isn't it? There's a, there's a social gathering and yeah. you bounce from one character. But what I love about that is you're taking characters that you've fallen in love with in completely separate... And these people could be at loggerheads and you think of that, are they going to hate each other? I mean, you, you know, when you have someone mm. like Rick and meet Savine or whatever, it's just joyful seeing these two completely different people come together and actually quite like each other and, uh, the, you know, two worlds collide. So, no, that was... That was huge fun, huge fun. Absolutely brilliant. And and Joe, just testament to what you've created here. Like I want to just big picture macro moment as well. When we started this podcast, you know, and people, we kept hearing people going back and back and back time and time again to listen to the interview that you, you did with Mark. And you've given people, especially in the writing community, I mean, readers aside, you're, I mean, when we told people that you were coming back on the podcast, the kind of response that we got, the excitement, you've, you've developed something so amazing through your books, it's re reflected by the kind of raving, dedicated fans that you've got. And I just want to honor that in this moment, because, you know, it's, we're going through this journey in life and it's like, you know, it's a train. You're absolutely right. It's like, blimey, look at my toes today. Right. But just a kind of macro moment, like, you know, to just enjoy this, the part of your journey in your writer's life that you are right now, because what we see from the outside is just this incredible, incredible um, group of fans that you've created. And it's testament to everything you've talked about, all the, the, the real effort you put into your writing, the editing and, and everything like that. And um, so really just a thank you for the inspiration that you give to the writing community as well, because we really have been trying to push on this podcast, this idea that, it's all about, it's not just the work that we do and the books we write and the fans that we get. It's the people we inspire through what we do that maybe then one day pick up a book and think, do you know what? I, I quite fancy trying a, uh, a book like Joe's. Or, so, and, and all those people, we never know, we never really hear those stories about the people. I mean, so um, just to acknowledge and honour that as you continue this journey and just to keep keep looking at your toes and heading forward and we have a very important question mark haven't we from julian barr uh you might you may or may not remember this quote that you said last time <laughs> but he wants to know if you still dance naked in the rain oh yeah yeah well i, I think that was in um in reference to getting published wasn't it and yeah. um that you know it's like being struck by lightning it's always a slightly lucky set of chances that that leads to publication and so it's like being struck by lightning but you can up your chances of being struck by lightning by you know dancing naked in the rain so having been struck by lightning once does anyone really want to be struck again i don't, <laughs> I don't know um and that's the time to stay dry i mean i suppose if uh, if i wrote something that was totally off the wall and new and different that might be the time to to uh, run out into the rain once more, but luckily not, not, not necessarily in the short term. Brilliant stuff. And Joe, just what's, what's down the road for you over the next six to 12 months? Well, good question. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm writing, I'm writing a new thing book wise. Um, yeah. I mean, I said that you always hate whatever you're working on at the time. <laughs> And that applies to this as well. <laughs> the, the whole idea was to write something 
joyful and, and energetic and exciting and silly that I could have fun with and, you know, wouldn't feel like work that I could do in between other stuff that I've got going on. And within about a chapter, it was, it was uh, becoming a, a difficult grind again. And now I'm slightly paralyzed in the middle of it. And I think my plan, you see, was to smash through a draft of it in much the same way as I had with, with Age of Madness. But in fact, I think I'm, I've reached a point where I need to just go through and redo a lot of what I've done already and get a better sense for what's there um, before I move forward. So I'm just taking my time with it and we'll see what happens. It's a new world and a very different thing from what I've done before. So we'll see how that goes. But I've got a load of other bits and pieces going on as well um, in the film and TV realm. Uh, yeah, I'd that, like to ask about that because uh, yeah. you, you got involved with the third best Terminator film. So do you want to do you want to talk about that <laughs> and your role in that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, only sort of very um, peripherally. I was I was in a writers' room with a set of other uh, well science fiction writers mostly, um, and um, Tim Miller, the director. And James Cameron, funnily enough, there were eight of us, I think. So there were a set of other sci-fi writers in there just doing kind of ideas, throwing ideas around for what a new film might contain. Mm. So that was an interesting experience, for sure. Because it's your idea, uh, The um, I've forgotten the name of the character, it's the blonde woman in it. Grace, uh, yeah. Yeah, you had a key idea about her, didn't you? Yeah, it was kind of my character concept, or in, in theory it was anyway. Um, but we all sort of pitched various stuff in. And then they went away and they wrote, you know, they wrote it. They, they ended up with something very different from what anyone's idea had been. I want to make the Terminator out of meat. <laughs> that was my big idea. I was like, you know, metal Terminator, yeah, liquid metal, yeah, whatever. I mean, the problem with liquid metal, right, is there isn't any in the past. You say you got the liquid metal in the future, you send it back to the past and you've got no, there's limited resource. Mm. Once the liquid metal's gone and knackered, that's it. So what you want is to make Terminators out of what there is in the past, not what there is in the future. What is the past full of? Meat. Meat. <laughs> meat. <Yeah>. So <laughs> make and the then, Terminator out of meat. I want then, to go back to kind of body horror. You know? And then you could go beyond meat in the future as well when we all move beyond that direction. Meat. <laughs> beyond meat. <laughs> yeah, the name of my approach. Um, <laughs> so not all my ideas fell on uh, fertile soil, let's put it that way. But, you know, that's the whole point of those things. Yeah. Everyone just throws out lots of nonsense and uh, you see what sticks. Well, if you if you're chatting to Jim Cameron anytime and he wants to come on the podcast, he's welcome. I mean, I'm sure we could squeeze him in, couldn't we, Mister D? I'm I mean, sure next time you know we have we have uh, drinks, I'll uh, <laughs> I'll bring it up. Lovely. <laughs> so, and actually, do you know what? I promise the next time I talk to Jim Cameron, I will Brilliant. talk to him. Thank about you. Thank that. you so much. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Any day now. <laughs> now, listeners, uh, we don't do this often, but we, we we do run competitions and giveaways every now and then. I've got a I've got a proof copy here of Joe's new book, and when I see Joe Ooh. at Waterstones, I will ask Joe if he can sign this for me. Now, it will have been read by me by them, so it will be well thumbed. So I'll have my germs, but I'll have Joe's germs as well, and ink in the shape of Joe's name on there. Hopefully, will you sign that for us, please, Joe? And then we can do a lovely giveaway. 
Uh, I mean, it's, it's going to uh, say no now. It's, yeah, it's going to say no. As we were saying earlier, you know. So, so we'll see. I mean, yeah, probably. Uh, am I, I going to have to wrestle you to the ground again? Is that what are we, are we going to be back to that? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Symmetry, yeah. symmetry. <laughs> More than happy. More happy to sign it. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll have a link in the show notes for the giveaway, folks. So do do check that out. So yeah, brilliant, Joe. Thank you so much for this. Uh, we do have some other listener questions. Maybe I can squeeze them into the Waterstone. So I do have one from our mutual friend Lisa Rogers, uh, copy editor, Supreme, who says in the business. She is, yeah, and she says if Gillian Redfern is Joe's buyers, does that make Lisa his Ural sulfur? That's not a, at all a bad, <laughs> a bad metaphor, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think probably so. A kind of slightly sinister, occasionally terrifying, <laughs> ruthlessly competent yeah. person. You know, and if they, if you're on their right side, then they're great to have around. But don't get on the bad side. Yeah, timelines, timelines with Lisa. That's um, yeah. And she says, when the movies are made, uh, who would he like to see cast as the plucky copy edit- editor? Uh, so who could play Lisa? Cast as the plucky copy editor. Yeah. I, think, I can imagine Gal Gadot doing a good job as the as the copy editor. She'd be great, you know, yeah, or um, cool. yeah, yeah, someone like that. Maybe maybe Charlize Theron could, mm. you know, have yeah. that mixture of grit and beauty that a, a strong copy editor needs. Yeah, excellent, excellent stuff. Right, yeah, excellent um, stuff. So, if people want to find out more about you, Joe. JoeAbercrombie dot com is the website, and at Grimdark is that your Twitter handle? What if they want to find out less about me? Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That I turned off long oh, yeah. ago. Lord Grimdark. Lord Grimdark. Lord Grimdark. Lord Grimdark. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. 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 It never be said that I'm not a genuine lord. <laughs> Excellent stuff. And if you want to get a copy of Joe's book, Wisdom of the Crowds, and if you haven't even read the Age of Madness trilogy, rush to your nearest library and do not ask, do not ask the librarian. <laughs> Get down to your bookstore and buy a coffee for yourself. Absolutely. Definitely. Joe, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show and uh, we wish you every success in the future moving forward as well. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Good luck to all the would-be writers out there. Brilliant stuff. And Mark, just to finish off, uh, people can find us on social media. Yeah, we're on Bestseller. If you're new to the show and you've enjoyed it, you're lucky. you've got hundreds of episodes, hundreds of episodes to go back and listen to with folk like Joe and Joe Hill, Sarah Pimbra, Michael Connolly, Ian Rankin, all sorts of amazing authors. So subscribe, rate and review on your podcast catcher and uh, start catching up. Big thank you as always to our editors, Dave and JD. And if you want to find us on social media, Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at X. And if you are writing, I want to take it to the next level, check out the Bestseller Academy. Uh, Links in the show notes to all of these wonderful things. Brilliant stuff. It's goodbye from Joe, one. And it's goodbye from Mark, one. And goodbye from Mark, two. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.